you for tuning in to today's Culture Briefing by Sparks and Honey. My name is Katherine Lin, and today we will be reflecting on AAPI Heritage Month, as the month of May was dedicated to honoring the past, present, and future of Asian American, Pacific Islander, and Native Hawaiian communities. I'm excited to unpack this topic today with our panel of AAPI community members and allies. Um, in the co-briefer seat today is a familiar face, Ben Grinspan. And on the panel, we have Shanti Mong and Trevor Gamble-Borsch. Um, thank you so much for joining uh, today. So as usual, we like to kick off our briefings with a guiding question to explore. So after a month of reflecting on issues facing the AAPI community, how can brands, nonprofits, creators, and the public um, activate on the big lessons of this heritage moment? How do we move from discussion to action or even profit when appropriate? And to help give us some preliminary insight on unpacking these really weighty questions, we plug some AAPI-related keywords into our cultural intelligence platform queue to identify any trends or shifts within AAPI Heritage Month or any issues affecting the community at large. So some of the elements of culture or EOCs that queues spit out here are quite aligned with what we usually see when we plugged in anything related to politics or identity. We're seeing moral, uh, moral imperative float to the top, polarization, but it's also really interesting to see, you know, snack media and meme culture, given how younger AAPI members are connecting through pages like Subtle Asian Traits, which kind of hit the waves a couple years ago, Subtle Curry Traits, or even Asian TikTok. Um, but Ben, are there any EOCs that pique your interest here? Yeah, I, I love that Blurred ID is is here. And, and, and part of, I, I think it's interesting in two parts. First of all, you know, the, it's funny that we talk about the AAPI community. I mean, we're talking about a really diverse group of people. Everybody from Micronesia all the way to, like, you know, Lebanon, right, could technically be parts of this story. So, you know, I think as we look at for, for very discrete identities here, you may not necessarily find them. Part of the value of the community is thinking about this in aggregate. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this because I, I don't know why more marketers don't go out directly after the AAPI community. And so I think part of that that is recognizing that blurred ID, understanding that dealing, that uh, engaging with the AAPI community is um, might be a little more complex than, uh, than than marketers are used to, and so hopefully, actually, today we can shed a little bit of light on some of that complexity and maybe some of those themes that apply to everybody, regardless of your Asian heritage. Yes, we love that blurred ID and like intersectionality here at Sparks and Honey. So we'll kick it off here with um, a bit more of a serious signal. Um, but in this op-ed piece by Michelle Ming at Teen Vogue, she argues that funneling greater police funding into cities will not solve or address a lot of the underlying power imbalance um, and biases that fuel hate crimes, such as the tragic Atlanta spa shooting that occurred a little over a year ago, the recent murder of Michelle Alyssa Go here in New York City, and even just day-to-day, -day, you know, that day-to-day -day fear of being turned away as an American, uh, Asian American in this country. And reflecting on the Black Lives Matter movement that defined the summer of 2020 for many of us, uh, Michelle also notes, quote, how they invited all of us, black, white, Latinx, AAPI, indigenous, to refine public safety in this country as, in as investments in our communities, social services, and infrastructures of care. More enforcement will not save us. And she really wraps up this really thoughtful piece by talking about how, you know, solidarity, solidarity is really key here as the forces of white supremacy are continuing to drive a wedge between not only community members but our allies as well. So altogether, we can see that there's a lot of promise and potential for really redefining public safety and how that can affect marginalized communities, but we have yet to see widespread action on this conversation by major institutions. 
Um, so obviously, the issues of white supremacy and anti-Asian hate can't be solved by a single person or institution. Um, but my question for the panel is, and even the audience, when we think about solidarity, what are some lessons that um, brands can take away from this? Uh, sure, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I, look, I think the past two years have been a master class in how brands uh, can engage in, in, in moments uh, like this. I don't know that everybody has gotten a passing grade. In fact, I think, uh, I think, I think a lot of people haven't. Um, I do think that what, what brands need to develop here a little bit is some muscles uh, to talk about uh, to talk about issues, not only just AAPI hate, but but so much of this is uh, you know brands are really terrified of the word white supremacy. I don't know if you can force them to say something like that, but I do think what you can do is as a brand, I think you can develop some of those muscles to say, what do I do in a moment where something where where a, a shop like the shooting in Buffalo happens, right? How do I talk about the fact that 17 of the 19 children who were killed in that in those schoolrooms in Uvalde, Texas, were Latino, and how do I engage with the AAPI community knowing that? Um, you know, they are facing these, you know, this spate of, of hate attacks. And I, I think less than under that, less than having a discrete uh, strategy for each of them, you might ask yourself, how do I speak to that uncertainty? How do I speak to that fear? How do I speak of that lack of, of trust? And because doing that can matter, can impact, can break through without having to address the things like white supremacy that your company might not feel like it has the ability to, to, to reasonably engage in. We are also seeing, though, brands engaging more at grassroots levels and getting engaged with like community groups and how can they better support uh, localized commerce and just engagement at that level. But it's important in recognizing there that grassroots uh, movements are also what are driving a lot of the most effective and progressive change when we're looking at these ideas. Uh, groups like Stop AAPI Hate, who works together with many uh, or just grassroots groups, but kind of helps to bring them together. They helped bring in a lot of community-focused funding in California last year, and that is funding that whenever we're talking about policing, it is important to still address those larger institutional issues because right now, the United States, the U.S. police force has the third largest budget globally when we're looking at militarized bodies. So it's the U.S. military, the Chinese military, and then U.S. policing before other national militaries. But how effective is that really being? Because whenever we're looking at the rise in Asian hate and also the inaction by a lot of police forces in really stomping out these unsafe actions and unsafe, just the, the domestic terrorism that is happening, let's be plain about it. We need to recognize how that funding is being focused and also that brands have a way of really interacting at these community levels to make that change happen so that we can institute greater institutionalized policy. And I just want to add on to that. I think consumers are becoming so aware and savvy of law enforcement and their ineffectiveness. And so they, too, themselves are looking for community-focused solutions. Yeah. So brands can really leverage that shift by empowering those community organizations. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of examples of that coming up. But I think it's important that we start this conversation with, with this uh, heavier note because it's, it's valid. And, you know, it's funny. We can't talk about power without talking about politics. And Unsurprisingly, I want to talk about politics for a second here. Now, um, as much as AAPI people are really important consumers and cultural catalysts, they're emerging as, as a very important voting block, especially young ones. The Harvard Kennedy School notes that in 2020, President Biden uh, won the state of Georgia with a slender margin of less than 13,000 votes, right? Um, but many attribute his victory in part to the fact that 185,000 Asian American and Pacific Islanders came out and voted in Georgia. They are an overwhelming, they are a young 
young group there, an overwhelmingly liberal group. It's very good evidence to suggest that that is what pushed him over the line, uh, not just in Georgia, but even perhaps to the, to the presidency. And a lot of hot races in Georgia in, uh, this year and in a number of states with these growing young Asian American populations as well. So Madeline Mielke, uh, the uh, president and CEO of Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies, is hoping for a record turnout among young Asian voters this year. It's worth noting that Asian Americans, of course, are not an, a monolithic group. Some skew conservative. Some have liberal opinions on one thing and very conservative opinions about China and others. And especially for younger voters, some of them are just, you know, removed from heritage questions and really want to think about things like education funding and paving the roads, right? Um, so it is worth pointing out uh, that just as we're having this conversation with Latino voters, we also need to recognize that Asian voters are critical, but they're not monolithic. So I guess the question for the panel and, and Kat, I might throw this to you. Um, is the AAPI voter the new soccer mom? Do we need to think a little bit differently about who's going to swing those important districts? And, and what does it say maybe the youth question as well? Mm -hmm. I mean, I love to have, you know, soccer mom energy as someone who doesn't want children. But, um... uh, well, but... <laughs> A lot of those soccer moms are Asian American too, right? That's you can true. Be both. That's true. And I, I think it's more than, you know, just translating those voting materials, as they mentioned in the signal. No, yeah. it's more than just translating these voting materials into different Asian languages, but really translating the issues, right? How a Chinese voter might think about taxes that probably differs from a Vietnamese or a Thai voter. Yeah. Um, so making sure that you're, uh, you know, addressing those nuances is really important. And for youth, I think it's addressing that Asian American nuance, right? Like, they, not only that they grow up with the issues that, you know, their parents had, but now they have to take on all these issues that are very unique to America and, you know, that they're surrounded by these American forces every day and there might be a disconnect between those cultures fighting within you. Um, that's a lot for a brand or a politician to pick up, but, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity for research there. Yeah, certainly. If you can sell someone on a product, you can always sell them on a vote, too, right? Sure. <laughs> that's, there's also a consideration of looking at, again, that institutional level, uh, the previous administration, the outward hate and resentment towards AAPI communities as compared to now with the new administration we're looking at. Uh, more, not necessarily wholly effective, but greater codification of protections and investments in these communities. Uh, but also AAPI communities historically have, of course, been judged monolithically. So there's some consideration when we're looking at those studies. But historically, this is a community that has been less active and less engaged in the voting bloc and in overall political issues. So seeing this upswing in participation is really Really important to note with, okay, yes, this is a community that we can engage. How are we doing that effectively now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shanti, can I put you on the spot for one second? I mean, you're an Asian American, you're a young Asian American voter. We know that BTS was at the White House <laughs> yesterday. Does that break through? Or is that just understanding that BTS has the TikTok, has the power of TikTok and, and Instagram uh, behind them? I mean, I think it definitely is going to get younger voters um, excited. Sure. And it definitely has the vir virality component to it where it will spread all over social media. That's why we're talking about yeah. it, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and as we think about more and more about, you know, dismantling the model minority myth, I think that's also like a moving driver for many youth, right? Knowing that, you know, we're not just a silent monolithic group of people. We have the right to fight back, and we definitely will. 
So speaking of fighting back, our next signal actually ties into this really well. And it's rather local, but the impact is definitely national in scale. So thinking about a couple weeks ago, there was a rally over in the uh, Great Neck Village of Long Island where New York Senator Anna M. Kaplan and Assemblywoman Gina Salidi hosted a rally to call for more AAPI education to combat anti-Asian hate. So both Kaplan and Salidi, along with uh, New York State Senator John Liu, have sponsored a bill called the Asian American History Bill, which, like its name, would require elementary and high schools across New York State to teach um, AAPI history and kind of teach its civic impact to uh, audiences of all kinds. And for those that want to learn more about this bill, it is currently code uh, S6359A in the New York State Senate. So overall, the objective of this bill is to really teach students about the historical contributions of Asian Americans that will help foster respect and understanding, but also so that Asian American students can see themselves reflected in history and know what, um, what really the present of the group is and really the future of Asian Americans are in America. And a really important quote that at least resonated with me um, in this article is that education may not bring about the fastest results, but it will bring about the longest lasting ones. So what are some of the ways that, you know, when we think about this, governance and legislation, they often move at a very slow pace. Um, so my question for the panel is, how can societal institutions get the ball rolling early so that we're not always waiting for these changes to happen? I know, Trevor, you had some thoughts about this one. Absolutely. I mean, this was, I, um, a little while ago, I ran an API advocacy workshop, and this was a big topic that people came in with questions about. Uh, it's very important. Education is obviously the first step in tackling an issue, because if you don't know about it, how are you going to fight it? Right. Uh, this is, there's been incredible erasure of API histories just whenever we're talking about American education. There are many other histories as well, but this is what we're talking about today. Uh, I think a good way of moving forward is definitely continued pushes like these. Uh, New York isn't the only place that this is happening. I know New Jersey, Connecticut, a couple of others are also making this push. It's very important that we recognize who Americans are, because if we're lauding ourselves for being a diverse nation built on many stories, we have to recognize those stories, and we have to be able to talk about those and also recognize the diversity of what has been very monolithic up to this point and continue continues to be a little bit. Uh, a good way to engage with that on the brand side is, of course, briefings like ours coming out, having people discuss these things so that you can get that initial burst of greater connect or, I'm sorry, connection and sentiment. So, I mean, if you want to talk about streaming, if you want to talk about uh, textbooks, like being able to focus in on these topics that haven't gotten enough focus up to this point and really showing yourself as being not necessarily new to a space, but being a forerunner in that space and that recognition. So, you know, it's funny because so much of this conversation today is happening in the horizontal, which I love. Um, and Trish, I might also, I'm just putting people on the spot today. Trish Rubin is joining us today, Sparks and Honey's original amplifier. And you're, I mean, you're an educator at heart and uh, as, a, as a profession. And I, I'd just be curious if you don't mind weighing in on this. Is this, um, does it make sense to be, as, uh, to be really proactive here and to, and to push this uh, as much as possible? Or, or um, how, do, how do we come up with those sort of inclusive uh, syllabuses to make sure that everybody uh, feels sort of represented. It's a very, um, you know, when you look at education, it's a, uh, from, it's a K to 16 spread, let's just say, you know, yeah. and I have spent my time in, in the lower areas and the lower levels in the elementary schools, and that's a long time ago. And I've, the thing about it is, I saw these conversations coming up earlier. Of course, they were more devoted to how are we going to be more accepting, you know, of our of, of the black kids that we see, even though we're not teaching in black schools. And oh my, you know, now we're seeing them 
that was the conversation. And I, I think we've made progress, but we certainly haven't made progress. It's tough at these elementary levels. It's tough when you're dealing with states that each regard this with certain lenses. Yeah. So I almost feel like it comes to who we're hiring, and that's the big question. That turns you to how can education draw the best of these of people who can nurture young children to be accepting of yeah. each other. And and that's a big issue in education right now. Yeah, and obviously when you, you know, teaching AAPI history, as important as it is, you're not just teaching AAPI history, right? It's you, you, are, you are teaching about acceptance, you're teaching about seeing the world through other people's eyes, and that's the value of that education, not only so we know our own history, right, but that also we can, uh, uh, that we can be open and, and draw lessons from, from others. Struggle, but I, I want to take it to that piece again of how do we, it's almost like we can't work in that micro-cosmic way, but if we can look at, a, a, at bringing people into education, yeah really see this big picture and work out of that sense of humanity, acceptance, mm -hmm. yeah. and we can make schools better places for people to come to who are smart and want to give, that could go a long way. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, should we move on to uh, talk a little bit about entertainment, right? We're living in the golden era of TV, and we're going to look at two signals about what AAPI Heritage Month means there and how we can move forward. Um, so we'll start here, uh, as we did with a lot of our decks last year, with Bridgerton, the romantic fantasy show on Netflix set in 18th century England that is a cast with all the diversity of 21st century London, right? So uh, writer Praveena Rudra here takes exception to people who are annoyed with the show's race-blind casting uh, and say it's historically inaccurate. But that's not the point, as Rudra gets at, and I love this. She writes, um, quote, this, uh, that the show features, quote, uh, as a number of South Asian cast members and also features, South, quote, South Asian rituals of delicately folded into stately English fare. They oil their hair at night, hang heavy jewelry uh, over their empire-waisted dresses. I don't like to admit this, uh, but it makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. So it's not just the story that's set in Regency-era England. It's, it's viewers like Rudra who can, who can find themselves uh, in, that, in that story, and it doesn't really matter that it's ahistorical because, you know, this isn't a, it's not a documentary, right? Um, and speaking of valuable television moment, uh, moments, Grey's Anatomy, which always loves to rip stuff from the headlines, recently incorporated, incorporated an anti-AAPI violence into their uh, storyline. As Yahoo reports here, uh, in one recent story, a victim of this kind of hate crime was brought into the show's ER, and an Asian-American cast member on the show, uh, quote, shared a touching moment while discussing what it's like to be Asian-American at this moment in America. Now, the net effect was a positive one. Lots of viewers online were saying it was great to see this stuff represented outside the news for a moment to chew over it culturally rather than just for, say, information. So both of these signals, for better or worse, I think speak to the value of representation. And I guess the question is, how do we think of this kind of conversation? How, how, how have we seen this evolve for the AAPI community? And, and what might the future of Asian American programming look like for big networks like ABC and, and Netflix? Yeah, so, so I'll start here. I mean, it's come a long way. Like, before you would see AAPI characters cast into the nerd, the doctor, the engineer, the, the martial arts star. And I, I love that we're going beyond that into these experiences, like 
experiencing an Asian hate crime or dressing up in, you know, like the beautiful Victorian fashion of Bridgerton. I haven't seen Bridgerton. Don't slam me for that. Ah. Um, but being able to portray these experiences where experiences don't fit into a box. You, it's not just a checked off box experience. And I think that's what viewers will want. They want that intersectionality, that kind of, you know, raw portrayal of things. Just thinking about the popularity of everything everywhere all at once yeah. and how none of those experiences fit neatly into a box. So that's what people want to see because that reflects their own experiences as well. Mm. It's also a component of just general escapism, because that's what we're looking at when we're watching a lot of these shows or engaging with this media. Uh, there was a study that came out either earlier this year or late last year that showed that, um, like you were saying, with a lot of those archetypes for casting, still API actors get cast in these roles almost half the time that they get cast for something. So there's still a way to go for it, but there has been a huge amount of progress. Recently, you look at Joel Kim Booster and his new movie that's coming out this month for also celebrating Pride Month and him as an Asian lead in that. It's, it's a better characterization, but it's also a fantasy characterization because if you're going to be looking at these Victorian or whatever area stories and you just kind of want to see some part of yourself through that, and that's very important for people. I think these signals were a really great starting point. Anecdotally, I saw a lot of people excited in the South Asian community. Um, I think that there is an opportunity to do more because representation does matter so much. Um, one of my core childhood memories was getting an Indian Barbie and realizing, like, oh, my God, Barbie isn't blonde. And so I'm 29, and I still haven't seen a Burmese character in mainstream media. And I, I'm also mixed. I'm half Asian. And I really feel like there's a lack of portrayal of being mixed in the United States. So I think this is great, but um, definitely a lot more opportunities for nuanced storytelling. Yeah, I, look, and you know, we, we've talked about this over the years, and I'll, I'll channel our advisory board member, Bing Chen, who once talked about the fact that, look, a lot of the struggle here is about money, right? And I'm really glad that you brought up um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, if you guys don't know it, it's a fantasy movie. It's done a $25 million budget. It's at like $60 million. It is like, it may not be the blockbuster that Top Gun is, but dollar for dollar, it's probably going to perform better. And, so, um, yeah, I think that's really exciting because I think it does prove that the money is there. And that, to me, is the real crux of this pop culture conversation that really, just in the past two years, I think we've seen that it's not just that Asian-American audiences are willing to go to the movies or to stream things where they see themselves reflected. It's also that white and black and Latino and indigenous Americans are willing to spend that money as, as well. And we just got to hope that the next budgets are bigger than $25 million and start being, you know, 50 and $100 million. Yeah, and it's a starting point for education, right? And kind of growing that awareness of, oh, what are the issues that AAPI community members go through? How does that resonate with my struggles? So yeah. it's this exposure to media that has seems to have a really short-term impact, but actually is a really um, long-running okay. investment, yeah. So circling from, not probably not as fun as TV, actually, but we did want to share this quirky uh, creative campaign launched by Anchor Worldwide, um, a creative agency over in Hudson Square. So in what they call a guerrilla marketing campaign, um, they are distributing fake pill boxes across New York City pharmacies. They look just like this. Um, and they are branded with messages to dismantle stereotypes and ignorance. So a label on the pill box actually reads, quote, there is no recommended dosage of anti-racism treatment. Only learning and understanding can help. If you are experiencing racist thoughts or behavior and feel increasingly violent towards others, just stay home and rest forever. Yeah. Um, no one wants racists out on the city streets. We all belong here. And then there is um, also a link to stopaapihate.org for people to learn more. 
So when asked about, you know, this really unique campaign, the chief creative officer, Aaron Sedlak, um, mentioned, you know, quote, it was like, how can we phrase a social movement as a medicinal cure? It's more surprising and less on the nose as your typical nonprofit pieces, which I think get washed out in the white noise of the media. And I, I love that wording of less on the nose because consumers are already bombarded with a lot of messaging day to day, whether it's on the nose or not. Um, so for the panel and the audience, you know, what are some ways that brands, creators, and, and nonprofits can benefit from this less on the nose messaging? Well, I think, yeah, just as you were saying, this is, you know, we're, we're surrounded by stories about anti-API violence, right? And, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily, we're finally having a conversation about it, but there is, you do need things to break through here. You do need, I mean, maybe not delight, but you definitely need that, that surprise. And so I thought this was fairly clever, right? Because this is going to get people to sort of stop and think. And also what's, what's funny about it, too, I'll, I'll tag this to our element of culture, tangible and tangible. Because it's one thing to hear a PSA or to see a sign that says something about this. It's another thing to hold this in your hand and to explore kind of what that means. And, and that is, that's going to stick with you a lot more than seeing just, you know, a, a black tile on your Instagram or, uh, or, or whatever. It feels like a, like a new iteration of, of that. I like the cheekiness of this, but I also just wonder how effective it actually is. Like, I don't think a racist person is going to look at it and go, I'm going to stay at home forever. And so I think, yeah. like, Marketing that bridges that knowledge gap might be more effective or important in this scenario. Um, I've seen that Ben and Jerry's, when they have posted on social about um, stopping Asian hate, they're a lot more stern than other brands, yeah. not just offering their sympathy. And they really look um, towards these issues with an anti-racist lens, which I think is important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, if we, if we don't mind moving on to the next signal, I think one thing that we have to talk about here is, you know, we've talked about the the cultural side of this, the policy side, some of the education. And, and now that we're talking about brands, it's worth recognizing that, um, like, literally, we were joking about how good <laughs> this headline is. This is the kind of headline I'd usually write, so shout out to Adweek. Um, it's not just that Asian Americans are the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing communities in the U.S. with major cultural clout. It's also they have a lot of spending power, too. This piece notes Asian Americans have the highest household income of any racial group in the U.S., with a collective buying power of $1 trillion. Uh, in 2019 alone, AAPI households earned uh, more than $784 billion in income. And I think this is really interesting. They, uh, Asian Americans are about 5% of the U.S. population. They are 7% of U.S. spending power, which means that the average Asian consumer has something like a third more purchasing power uh, than, than your average, uh, you know, than, than sort of any other consumer. So the spending really can be advantageous here, right? Uh, Asian Americans have more people in the household. 17% more people live on average live in the U.S. in an Asian American household than a white American household. And those households are more likely to be multi-generational. So you're not just selling to one person. You may be selling to kids and adults and grandparents. And um, as this article uh, notes uh, from, from Adweek, it gives advice to brands, advertisers, and media buyers saying, you know, you need to think more strategically about this. This is a, a group that is really primed to spend in big ways with cash to back it up. Um, and yet very rarely do we hear advertisers and media folks, even the best of them, say, okay, what's the fundamental, what's the Asian American play here? How do we, how do we bring in AAPI people? So, um, you know, I guess the question for the panel is, do we see advertisers making progress uh, here? Do any of the AAPI people in the room or on the panel feel like they've been marketed towards a little bit more? And I'm also curious what some of the barriers are, are to this, if, if, if advertisers maybe don't feel like they have the, the language or the, or the cultural um, 
you know, permission to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just speaking from my own experiences, I feel like there's a focus on what AAPI consumers are focused on in the moment versus what their needs are mm-hmm. just as a person, for example. Like, you can see Shang-Chi branded whatever for sale, but yeah. that doesn't talk about maybe raising my grandparents or living in a multi-generational household. All these other issues that I'm battling in the long run are not being addressed. Um, so that's a really valuable opportunity there. But again, the language has to be right. You know, have to talk to these like consumers and understand, you know, in their day-to-day what they're experiencing, what are these emotions that they're having versus kind of stepping into their shoes for this brief, brief period of time and being, oh, it's Lunar New Year. This is a joyous occasion. We'll work on that, but then forgetting about the rest of the year. Speaking of Lunar New Year, I noticed a lot more brands were involved this year. Um, it felt like, though, that they were really sticking to literal translations of the Zodiac. And I think, again, there's a lot more opportunity there. Um, different countries celebrate Lunar New Year differently. Uh, they also There's also really interesting superstitions related to luck that could really captivate Gen Z both inside the community and outside the community since they're so into astrology and mysticism. So it's not just about the Zodiac. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that, too? I was, um, I was just at a, a, a party a couple weeks ago with a friend who's Muslim and had a bunch of stuff from an, an aid party that she threw, right? And obviously, that what, what's interesting about that to me is that that's a cultural tradition that goes across Asia, but also across Africa and the U.S. And some of these traditions feel, they may feel rooted in one specific, she's Iraqi, it may feel rooted in one culture, but actually the relevancy expands beyond that. And so I think you're right. I think it's both how do you speak to the people on the day that matters and also, more importantly, make sure that you have sort of those things that speak to people uh, in, in, in their bigger, broader lives that aren't just cultural concerns, but maybe concerns that face the entire demographic um, like, uh, you know, like you were getting at. Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't know if you know Brian Onsom. Yeah. So I, I use that as a case study. With, my, with some of my classes, and they're two sisters. They're amazing. They're here in New York. And the thing about them is, for me, I mean, I'm a foodie, but I, would, I, would I take myself out to an Asian market and go shopping in an Asian market? I, I would do that maybe once or every six months. Yeah, it's not the thing. Yeah. But I think it's the D to C piece of this for brands. If you can, like, I think you'll see a lot of real creative types of yeah. people, like with Amsam. And they are on fire. Yeah. But it's like that the, the D2C place where you can really show who you are. And you can talk to these commonalities like your grandmothers, your stories, your families. And, and show that community and say, gosh, you know, I feel like that too about what I'm doing. So I think D2C is a good part. I love that. Mm-hmm. Great. The, uh, on, on, so I actually, I know Vanessa, the one founding sister. Yeah. She's very nice. Yeah. But no, they uh, the work that they're doing it's it really it pulls all of this together because we're talking about that day to day experience of bringing in those uh, those outside cultures with what is considered the American culture. But really, at the end of the day, it's all the American culture because if we want to consider the long lasting issues of the perpetual foreigner lens that's applied to API communities, that's where brands are having that disconnect because they think, oh, I'm advertising to America here's this perception of that, but really you need that diverse input to bring in these considerations that have been here even longer than America has been around. If you think about Mm -hmm. uh, Filipino populations that have been here since before America was independently America, or if you want to talk about Pacific Islanders and how long they've been on Hawaiian islands, like 
This is Sadly. outlasting how long America has been here. So what is truly American yeah. here is something that brands need to contend with. Totally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so one way of doing that, and I'll point out this signal really quickly, is that... Um, P&G uh, has been doing some, some interesting work uh, on this subject. Obviously, P&G has, honestly, really great marketing, and, and, um, but they want to go beyond a simple press release for the month, of, for AAPI Heritage Month. So they released this, uh, this new film called, quote, The Name, as part of an integrated campaign to inspire conversation and encourage people to learn uh, how to say AAPI names. Our, getting, our, getting someone's name right is the first sign of respect, right? It's also a sign, uh, you know, uh, something our, our vice president faces where people want to denigrate her by just mispronouncing her name all the time. So um, the film, uh, along with some educational resources and tools, uh, is how the company is trying to make its commitment to making everyone feel seen, everyone feel served um, for this specific month. And I'll just read a quick quote here. Quote, at P&G, we believe that progress starts by seeing the world with a broader perspective. Uh, the film spotlights the honest realities of the AAPI experience today, informed by their lived experiences, cultural identities, and backgrounds. And, and the big thing here is that this is not the entirety of P&G and their advertising companies coming forward to produce content. They lifted up the content and the voices of specifically of AAPI creators and Asian American uh, filmmakers. So I think what's interesting, and why I bring this up here, is that in some ways, and maybe this is something D2C can do really well, it's, it's letting, um, letting the affected group speak. Right, and having a moment to 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 uh, let their voices be heard. So I, I'm just curious, your take on um, the need to have you know Asian Asian faces out front, not only on camera but even behind camera, and writing the strategy, and also hopefully writing those checks because you know that's <laughs> that's the most important place to be. Yeah, I'm, I mean that all speaks to authenticity, right? You're not just talking the talk, but you're also walking the walk, and I, I think that also speaks to. In addition to authenticity, just meeting people where they're at. Like, you know, with the name, it was a really highly recommend watching. It's only like a minute long. And it, it really resonated with me. Like, I have a Chinese middle name I was always afraid to share growing up. But it also really taught me that it's important to meet people where they're at. So for people that don't have a name that's hard to pronounce, you know, why does it matter that I butcher their name once? I won't do it again. But it's that first impression that really hurts you at first. So even in this challenging social and political climate, um, how can brands make that step to kind of level the playing field? Whether you're an ally or not, you're not familiar with the community, this is where it all starts. It starts with the name. And then we'll move forward with everything else. So a lot to think about, but um, definitely a really powerful piece for sure. Um, yeah, I'll move ahead. Um, so this is our last signal for today. And it did not emerge during AAPI Heritage Month per se, but we felt that it was really important to include given that it integrates innovation with the idea of equity, which is something that we also talk about in one of our recent intelligence reports, The Equity Effect. So in March, a startup called Bayani Pay partnered up with uh, East West Bank to, to launch what they call a pioneering neobank that specifically caters to the needs of Filipino Americans. Mm. So uh, the partnership offers a digital checking account from East West Bank, a corresponding visa card, and zero-fee uh, zero real-time remittances to the Philippines. So the checking benefits are really geared towards these Filipino immigrant communities who tend to hold onto their assets as cash, just because, as we all know, signing up for a traditional bank account, you have fees, you have all the paperwork. That's really hard to deal with. Even, you know, if you speak English, that's already hard to right. deal with, but let alone not knowing the language and having to go to a bank physically. Or if you're undocumented. <laughs> or if you're undocumented, yeah. There's a lot of barriers there. And to make it even more accessible, Bayani Pay has also partnered with Seafood City, the largest Filipino supermarket chain in the U.S., to really support uptake. 
So in the Seafood City stores in California, you can go in, there's like a booth and some brand ambassadors to help you sign up and kind of communicate um, in your native language. So for the panel and the audience, I'd love to know, you know, how should brands approach um, catering to specific communities' needs, even if they don't necessarily know that community or are based out of that community? I want to make a reference back to your point on uh, AAPI household income. The, that having that highest median household income, uh, the issue with that metric is, again, the monolithic labeling of the group. Whenever we're looking mm -hmm. at, uh, not to say that it's a bad metric in any way, that's very important that we recognize that, but whenever you start to break it down, you recognize that especially Southeast Asian and Hmong groups have less financial access and less capital as compared to uh, East Asian and Indian groups. And so it's very important that we see this outreach because if we want to actually be addressing the AAPI community, we need to be recognizing the full breadth of that community rather than just focusing on components that some people are more familiar with. Yeah, I mean, I don't need to sell anybody in the room here on cultural strategy, uh, but we do have to recognize that culture and income are often... I, I did some work a million years ago thinking about uh, mortgages, and, and you know, one thing that we found, and this relates to the, um, the African-American community, is that... You know, so African-Americans uh, often uh, carry higher levels of debt than other uh, people in the U.S., often college debt or even just personal debt. But even in that breakdown, you see African-Americans whose parents were born in the U.S. earn lower incomes than African-Americans whose parents were born elsewhere, right? And so there is, like, a ton of nuance that needs to be brought in there, and that's going to change access to things like mortgages. And, uh, you know, we have to recognize, are these people born in the U.S.? Do they have immigrant backgrounds? Like... It is, it is a, the real value of understanding that income is not just income. Income is informed by culture, and that's why it's great to see a brand trying mm -hmm. to meet Filipino uh, people sort of where they are. Great. So running through all of our signals, it's time to circle back to our guiding question that close us out here. Um, so thinking back to how, you know, brands, nonprofits, and creators, how can they activate on this heritage moment? I'd love to hear from Ben first. Um, how can brands and nonprofits move from discussion to meaningful action? Well, okay, it's funny to talk about this in the context of being a non-Asian man on this, <laughs> on, on this panel, unless you count my, you know, 2,000 years ago in Israel. Um, but I do think that what's really important is to make sure that everyone feels like they have a say in this. That this isn't just, these aren't just conversations that happen in the, in the employee resource group. Everyone, it doesn't matter your background, needs to recognize that they have a role to play in there. And so what I would encourage some of those brands and nonprofits to, to think about is um, ways in which this moves from a, how do you move this from a niche concern to something that is built into both your day-to-day -day planning and your long-term planning? Because you're going to benefit tremendously by asking yourselves those, those sort of questions and recognizing it's not just your Asian, it's not just your Asian team member's question to ask. It's, it's truly everyone's. Yeah, it's like an investment in people, right? Whether they yeah. work for you or not. It's an investment in people is a long run, product is short run. Yeah, it's building yeah. those cultural muscles I talked about in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Shanti, for the general republic, or public, uh, also Republic of America, I guess, <laughs> um, what would you say are some big lessons from this conversation about next steps for the AAPI community and those that want to support them? I think the biggest takeaway is just the breadth of the Asian American cohort and the diversity there. I think brands and consumers are becoming uh, way more aware of the nuances, but there's just so much potential in innovation, marketing, services, products, how stories are told, um, and I can't wait to see how that unfolds. Definitely. And Trevor, to all of our allies, you know, how can we support marginalized communities beyond the scope of a heritage or history month? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a space that I personally have spent a lot of time in, so I want to try to not ramble and keep it concise here. Um, but there is a lot to still be done. The first step, of course, is just educating yourself, educating others. Uh, advocacy is a daily practice. It is rigorous. There's a lot to do here, and that's something that brands and companies also need to recognize, that they need to have people really devoted to this. Uh, the other issue is, of course, that this is a hard issue. This is We're facing long institutionalized white supremacy here. And that can be very difficult to do when the voices that have the information on how to combat that aren't voices that are normally heard. Uh, there are people of color, especially women of color, that deserve to be on this couch more than I do right now. And we need to do better to be elevating their voices and to be investing in their communities. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but we need to do that work. Yeah, it's definitely a conscious, you know, it's like empathy. Empathy is a muscle that you have to work on. And I think for brands, kind of consciously remembering to work on that muscle every day is the hardest part. Um, but just wrapping up on that note of empathy, that was our briefing for today. Thank you so much to Ben, Shanti, and Trevor for joining us and for really reminding us that, you know, even though Heritage Months only have the public spotlight for a month, um, the impacts of empowerment last a lifetime. Um, if you're interested in joining more of our cultural briefings, they're live streamed on LinkedIn every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern. While you're tuning in, feel free to jump into the comments. Let us know your thoughts and questions, and we might even address some of them live. If you're interested in Q, our cultural intelligence platform that helps us build out these deep dives, um, feel free to reach out, and we'd be happy to walk you through a demo. Tomorrow, we will be discussing Parenting Gen Alpha, which will be interesting for parents uncles, aunts, siblings, relatives, you name it. There will be actual insights for everyone. But until then, consider yourself free.